pointing towards the imminent return of Christ for his church. So I decided to do this. I'm going to kind of revisit that. So I'm just going to title this message, uh, Signs Revisited. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. And this is kind of was the focus of the series. This is the conversation Jesus has with the disciples. They've entered into Jerusalem, and uh, this is his final week. And uh, this is the conversation he has uh, with the disciples as they're marveling at the buildings and the majesty uh, that they find there in Jerusalem. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must it must come for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus gives us a, a general description of the world prior to the rapture of the church. And in verse six. There's an area I just like to focus on, or a sentence there. It says, uh, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And currently there are 32, 32 armed conflicts taking place around the world at this time. 32. Of course, the one that seems to get the most attention taking center stage, obviously, is the conflict we see taking place in Israel. And in verse 7, Jesus said, nation will rise against nation. Of course, we understand the New Testament is originally recorded in Greek, the manuscripts. And so the Greek word there for nation against nation is ethnos against ethnos. In the last days, there will be a surge of ethnic conflicts. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the different armed conflicts that are taking place, they have an, an, there's an ethnic motivation. Last week, we saw over 1,300 Jewish civilians innocently slaughtered by Hamas militants. So why, why does Hamas, why do they have this desire to kill innocent citizens? And the fact is just this, they hate Jews. And on Friday, the Arab world participated, participated in a day of jihad, protesting against Israel's right to defend itself. I find it ironic from a from the Arab perspective, it's okay if Hamas kills thousands of innocent people, but if Israel begins to push back and begin to show retaliation, that it's wrong, it's condemned. Church, we are seeing something I think it is very, it's eerily similar to the same anti-Semitic uh, sentiment that was around World War II, the days leading up to World War II, which leads to the Holocaust. And I asked, if I asked you all to do this, if I asked you, for me, if you could describe to me the origins and the ongoing conflict of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, could you accurately, accurately do so? And most of you couldn't. Because really, if you think about it, we always hear of conflict in the Middle East, and it just becomes a mute point. And it's, it's, for us, it's just, it happens all the time. It just becomes, it becomes a mute subject. A great deal of Christians don't know about this conflict or understand it. They don't care. Some of you sitting here this morning are like, why does it matter? This is halfway around the world. What does that have to do with me? 
or we're just ill-informed about the ongoing conflict and its prophetic implications. But this is what I'm going to do. I normally don't do this on a Sunday, but I really found something that's like very helpful for us to understand what's going on, what's taking place. It's a 10-minute video. It's written just from a secular point of view, just historical facts that'll help you better understand how we're in this place. Why, why is there this conflict taking place in Israel, which dates back to over 4,000 years ago? So if you would go ahead, just watch the video, and then I'll, I'll come right back after it. Israel, the world's only Jewish state, located east of the Mediterranean Sea, and Palestine, the territory of the Arab population that hails from the Israel-controlled land, have long been known for their enduring conflict with the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The tension between Israel and Palestine has been deteriorating in years, climaxing with many violent clashes between the two sides. To understand the root of the Israel-Palestine conflict, we have to look back a few thousand years ago. Early History of Israeli-Palestinian Conflict In the 17th centuries BC, following the call of God, three patriarchs of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, settled in Canaan, a region approximating present-day Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, parts of Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. The region later had the name the Land of Israel, the Promised Land, the Palestine region, or the Holy Land. In 1000 BC, King Saul established the Israelite monarchy, which then was ruled by King David who made Jerusalem the capital of his kingdom, and his son King Solomon who built the first temple in Jerusalem. After the death of King Solomon, the united monarchy was split into the Kingdom of Israel in the north, with Samaria as the capital and the Kingdom of Judah in the south, with Jerusalem as the capital. The land became home to a majority of Jews, but then it was subject to numerous conquests of various groups, leading to the significant decrease of the Jewish population on the land. One of these conquests was conducted by the Roman Empire who gave the name Palestine to Judah, intending to break the Jewish connection with the land of Israel. During this time, Christianity, which started as a Jewish sect, ultimately became a dominant religion toward the end of the Roman Empire. In the seventh century came an Arab conquest, beginning the spread of Islam. The Dome of the Rock was built on the ruin of the Second Temple, making Jerusalem the holy city to three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. After Christians in Jerusalem were intensely persecuted by the Seljuk Turks, a Central Asian Empire with ambition to expand its territory, Christians in Europe launched several crusades to bring the holy city back to the hand of the Christians. During this time, many Jews were killed. Others were making pilgrimages everywhere, mostly in Western Europe. From the 16th century to World War I, the Holy Land, along with much of the Middle East, was ruled by the Ottoman Empire an Islamic superpower. The land was unofficially called Palestine. At the same time in Europe, more and more Jews were joining a movement called Zionism, aiming to create a Jewish national state in its ancient homeland. Hence, in the first decade of the 20th century, tens of thousands of Jews moved from Europe back to the region. Israel and Palestine under the British rule. World War I exploded and ended with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Its land in the Middle East was carved by the British and French empires. 
The British then gave more independence for Iraq and Jordan, and the region remaining under the control of Britain was what it called the British Mandate for Palestine, where Britain promised to establish a Jewish national homeland under its Balfour Declaration, which went into effect in 1923. Tensions between the Jews and the Arabs who both claimed the land grew, which even led to acts of violence. By the 1930s, following the increasing Jewish population in Palestine due to the fear of persecution during the Nazi reign in Germany, the British limited Jewish immigration. In response, the Jewish militias formed to both fight the Arabs and resist the British rule. Then came the Holocaust throughout Nazi Germany, which claimed almost 6 million Jewish lives. After the war, more and more Jews then fled from Europe to Palestine to seek a homeland, escalating the tension with the Arabs. Overwhelmed by the situation, Britain began to withdraw from the region. The Birth of the Israel State After World War II, the UN proposed a plan to partition Palestine into two independent states, a Jewish state and an Arab state, with the city of Jerusalem becoming an international zone with a special status. However, the plan according to which the Jewish, accounting for only one-third of the population, was granted more territory, 56.5% of the land, was rejected by the Arabs. They began to form volunteer armies throughout Palestine. Less than one year after that, as Britain completed its withdrawal from Palestine, Israel declared itself an independent state, marking a new, bloodier chapter in the struggle between the Jews and the Palestinian Arabs. The 1948 Arab-Israeli War Right after the announcement of an independent Israel, a war between the Arabs and the Jews broke out, which was known as the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The war involved five recently independent Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, the Arab League, who invaded the region in an attempt to establish a unified Arab Palestine. However, a ceasefire agreement was reached a year later in which more than two-thirds of historic Palestine, including the West Jerusalem, belonged to Israel, while Jordan occupied East Jerusalem and the area known as the West Bank, and Egypt occupied the Gaza Strip. As a result, more than 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from the land where they lived for centuries on the day that they call Al-Nakba, or the Catastrophe. With the deteriorated dispute between the Jews and the Arabs, there came more wars and fighting in the following decades. The Sixty-Day War It was in 1967 when the Sixty-Day War broke out, after a volatile period of diplomatic friction and skirmishes between Israel and its neighboring Arab states, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. This brief war ended with the victory of Israel, giving Israel control over the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. Sinai was later returned to Egypt under the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. After the war, most Palestinian refugees and their descendants were not allowed to return to their homes, but had to live in Gaza, the West Bank, and neighboring Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. The First Intifada and the Oslo Accords The rising number of Israelis settling in the Palestinian territories in the West Bank and Gaza gave rise to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, first founded in Cairo, Egypt in 1964 to create a liberated Palestine in Israel. 
The PLO launched attacks on Israel from its base in Jordan. It was then forced to move from Jordan to Lebanon, starting to carry out acts of terrorism against Israel. Fighting went on for years, including the Israeli invasion of Lebanon to kick the PLO out of Beirut. The PLO eventually agreed to divide the land between Palestine and Israel, but there were still more and more Jewish settlers moved into the Israel-occupied Palestinian territories. In 1987, a violent Palestinian uprising was ignited, starting from the Jabalaya refugee camp after an Israeli Defense Forces truck collided with two Palestinian civilian vans, killing four of them. This was known as the First Intifada. This bloody conflict resulting in hundreds of deaths triggered a peace process with the signing of the Oslo Accords by Israel and the PLO the Oslo I Accord signed in Washington, D.C., and the Oslo II Accord in Taba, Egypt. According to the Oslo Accords, the West Bank was divided into three areas. Area A was exclusively controlled by the Palestinians. Area B was controlled by both the Palestinians and Israel. Area C was fully controlled by Israel. The Second Intifada Though further peace talks continued in 2000, the Israelis and Palestinians could not reach agreements on issues like the status of Jerusalem, rights of refugees, and the increased Jewish settlement in Palestinian lands. Ariel Sharon, a Jewish Israeli who would later become Israel's Prime Minister, visited the Temple Mount, home to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. The action was deemed offensive by many Palestinians, and the Second Intifada broke out. The violence ended with Israel's withdrawal from Gaza, but continued to settle in the West Bank. Israel Conflict with Hamas Hamas is a Sunni Islamist militant group aiming to destroy the state of Israel and create an Islamic state. After the armed conflict between Hamas and Fatah, who managed the PLO, Hamas split from the Palestinian Authority and gained power in the Gaza. Israel put Gaza under a suffocating blockade, leading to several bloody wars between the two groups in the Gaza Strip, including Operation Cast Lead, Operation Pillar of Defense, and Operation Protective Edge. In 2014, Hamas and Fatah reached agreement to form a national unity government. In 2018, the U.S. Embassy was relocated from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was deemed by the Palestinians as a signal of American support for Jerusalem as Israel's capital. 2021, the conflict between Israel and Palestine was reassumed by a series of hostile events in East Jerusalem, leading to several acts of violence until a ceasefire deal brokered by Egypt, Qatar, and the United Nations came into effect on May 21st. Peaceful though it may seem now, the complex and long-lasting territorial dispute between two states is a ticking time bomb that can explode any time. As you can tell, that video was prior to the events that have taken place. But at the end of the day, with the, the rise of Hamas, and Hamas is really just a political group within uh, the Gaza Strip, their articles of you know, their constitution, not, the big thing with them is the destruction and removal of the Jewish people entirely from the land. This shouldn't surprise us what we're seeing today. And they are nothing more than armed terrorists who are running a state. Are there innocent people on both sides? Absolutely. 
but this is an armed conflict with a terrorist state. God's promise to the Jewish forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in the, in the, for the land of Canaan is what we have to go back to. And we have to look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. And this is what God spoke to Abram. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God promised Israel the land as an everlasting possession. There's nowhere in the Bible where that promise has been rescinded. The promise remains valid to this day. It's an everlasting possession. As Christians, our support for Israel ought to be unwavering. If we oppose Israel's right to occupy the land, we oppose God's everlasting promise that they shall possess the land. There are people who don't recognize the land of Israel and refer to it as Palestine, and you saw in the video why. Some people believe the land that is occupied by the, by the Palestinians is there because they are the descendants of the Philistines. The Palestinians are not the descendants of the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines were Phoenicians, Phoenician settlers from Crete who relocated to Canaan along the coast. The name Philistine in Hebrew, if you look it up in your Bible, means immigrant. Various DNA projects between Jews and Palestinians prove they are not Phoenician. In fact, Palestinians are a mixture of Arab and Jew. For centuries, the Jewish people have lived through persecutions, genocide, and exile, but they have remained steadfast in their land. Much of the Arab world does not recognize the Jews as a people group. They are a religious group, and therefore they shall have no right to the land. No, peop no religious group has any right to the land in their eyes, and that's why it's rightfully theirs. Even if you look at the struggles Israel has faced and the drives to eradicate them from the Holy Land, there has been a continu continuous Jewish presence in the land since Joshua conquered it after the death of Moses. Even when the Babylonians invaded Judah, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they removed all the inhabitants from Jerusalem, but they were not able to entirely displace the Jews throughout the entire region of Judah. There remained a remnant. And over three millennia now, Israel has occupied the land God promised as an eternal possession. Israel is one of the most fought-over pieces of land in world history. And yet when you look at it, it is not rich with natural resources. You can look at all the conflicts they've been involved in, how many times they've been surrounded, how many times their enemies has come against them in overwhelming force, and yet they were able to repel them. I don't know about you, but I would have to go back to the book of Joshua, and I see a kinship between the two stories. How Israel would face overwhelming odds and enemies, and yet they would prevail. Why? Because the land is an everlasting possession. Today, there are 9 million Israeli citizens living in Israel. 20% are Arab and live there peaceably. If you want, have any idea about how big Israel is, it's a very small piece of land. It's a, at its longest length, it's 114 miles. At its widest width, it's only 71 miles long. It is roughly the, state, the size of the state of New Jersey. The Arab-Israeli conflict is a family feud. 
And it dates back all the way to Abraham. Abraham is the ancestral father of Jews and Arabs. The Jews trace their ancestry through Isaac, while the Arabs trace their lineage through Ishmael. That's Isaac's half-brother. And the recent conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians may be giving us a glimpse into the future. And I'm not saying this conflict we're seeing today is going to fulfill Bible prophecy. However, this conflict could lead to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. There's a big difference between the two. Are you following me? The situation in Israel has the potential to ignite a world war. Uh, If Israel is attacked by another nation, let's say such as Iran or Syria, America has vowed that it will come to its rescue or come to its aid. I don't know that the Israelis really need our help, to be honest with you. If America joins the fight, other Muslim nations will join in. And if the United States becomes involved in the conflict, there is a good chance that Russia will also become involved. Russia has a vested interest in Syria. Russia has backed the the Syrian uh, uh, government against the rebellion that's taking place. They've always had a vested interest in Syria. If you think back to the Six-Day War in 1967 and the Arab-Israeli War in 73, both conflicts drew broader involvement from the Arab world. You saw some of that in the video. And these conflicts ended before Russians, Americans, and Europeans, and even East Asians uh, became involved into the conflict. And there was a resolve before there was a war that broke out between the nations. Many prophecy experts see this current conflict leading to the possible possible fulfillment of the Gog and Magog prophecy recorded in Ezekiel chapter 38. And personally, I see the same potential. Church, the situation in Israel must be taken seriously by every one of us. This is not something you should turn a blind eye to and say, this has nothing to do with me. It can have everything to do with you today. When we look at the prophetic timeline concerning end-time events, nothing is preventing Jesus from returning for his church. When we look at at the current situation and we're looking at these things that are taking place, while they may have a prophetic value, nothing is keeping Jesus from returning for his church. We aren't waiting for any prophetic event to take place. That is a false premise. If anyone teaches you this has to take place, this has to take place, and that is incorrect. That is not Bible. We are simply called to look, to wait for his return. The signs that we're seeing are reminding us that his return is imminent, and we as his church must be ready. And some people look at the recreation of the state of Israel in 1948 as the harbinger for Christ's return. I'm sure every one of you, if you've been a Christian long enough, and if you've got into any type of Bible prophecy, you've probably heard this repeated by some preacher somewhere. The generation who witnesses the recreation of the state of Israel will see Christ's return. Have you heard that before? If that's true, we know approximately when Jesus is returning. We've, we put a timeline on it now. Christ will return when God says it's time to return for your church. And he has predetermined that. That is already determined. Jesus could have returned for his church prior to Israeli statehood. And people say, well, it has to be a state for the temple to be built. Hey, listen, it can happen just like that, statehood or not. Jesus could have returned for his church prior to Israeli statehood. Israel can be taken over by Arab nations next week, and that will not prevent Jesus from returning for his church. 
God has a plan and a purpose, and that purpose will be fulfilled at his timing. Jesus never admonishes us to look for the restoration of Israel. Never. In fact, if you think back to the the disciples, Jesus is spent, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. And right before he's leaving, we got a question, we got a question. And this is the question. Now are you going to restore Israel? You remember that conversation? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Signs give us some insight or give us a warning, so to speak, that Jesus is coming, reminding us that his return is imminent. The signs Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 24 are birth pains. And they will increase with intensity and they will occur with greater consistency, warning us that Christ's return is imminent. Jesus likens that date of his return to the days of Noah and Lot. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Those people who ignored the signs perished. The people who lived during those days ignored the signs and they perished. They did not heed the warnings with repentance. And that's exactly what the signs are for is to draw us closer to Jesus and not to move us away from him. Every day those people ignored God's early warning system. And what did they do? They refused to repent and sank deeper and deeper into their sin. Once these people hit rock bottom and refused to repent, God poured out his judgment upon them and only the righteous survived. Jesus likens the days of his return to Noah and Lot. Are we seeing signs that the rapture of the church is near? If so, we cannot make the same mistakes as those people did living in the days of Noah and Lot. We must respond to Christ with repentance and faithfulness. Our world has embraced good as evil and evil as good. We've embraced lawlessness and we have rejected civil order. We've embraced murder and we have rejected the sanctity of life. We have embraced sexual perversion, and we have rejected monogamy. The signs are all around us, but the church is turning a blind eye, hoping that these signs will go away. Why does God continue to show us signs? Why doesn't Jesus just come back now and just get it all over with? Here's at the heart of it. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Aren't you grateful that he's long-suffering toward you? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is showing us mercy. God does not want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. You say, even those militants who murder and hate Jews? Yes. The signs we're seeing are reminded of two things. Two, two valuable points. Number one, we must be ready spiritually and morally for the return of Christ. Number two, 
we need to help others get ready spiritually and morally for the return of Christ. The current conflict between Israel and Hamas is not an event directly fulfilling Bible prophecy. However, again, it could lead to the fulfillment of future prophetic events. The table can be, in a, in a, in a way, is being set, and I believe that with all my heart. As born-again followers of Jesus, walking in fellowship with Christ, we ought to know, or we should be aware of the times and seasons that are foreshadowing his return. Here's what I mean by that. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, and this is what the world would say, peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should not overtake you as a thief. Now, we don't know when Jesus is coming, but when he comes, it shouldn't catch us by any surprise. While we don't have the privilege of knowing when Jesus will return for his church, we should be able to recognize the times or the seasons leading up to that return. Give you an example. It's fall in Northwest Florida. Amen, finally. Now, fall in this area is not determined by the calendar. Since the start of May up until this past week, it has been hot summer. But now we're starting to see that change in the air. The, the, the days aren't as hot. The humidity is not so bad. The, gra the grass is slowed down. It's not growing as fast as it was. It's not as green. But there's a change. We, we just sense it. We know it. We're accustomed to it. We recognize it. We can tell by the signs that the season is transitioning. Because I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't say that it's totally fall. We're transitioning into fall. Because we know this, there could be summer days in the middle of this transition. So we're transitioning. The war is being won by fall. We're seeing a change of seasons in our local area, but are we seeing the changing of seasons around our world? Before Jesus returns, there will be some type of turmoil or war in the Middle East. And we know that based on what takes place in the tribulation, the aftermath of that, and how the Antichrist is able to get into the position that he'll be in. In the aftermath of an armed conflict, there will be a void created by the rapture of the church. I mean, people are going to wonder, where did everybody go? Where did these people go? That void created, the Antichrist will arise on the scene, and he will broker a peace deal with Israel. He will bring a deal that no other leader has been able to do in human history. And while the church is out of the way, the world will see this man as, not as the Antichrist, they will believe this man is the Christ, because this man is able to bring peace to an area that has been at war for thousands of years. We will, he'll be looked upon as the Christ, and he will give the world a false peace, rather than the shalom peace that God has promised to his people Israel. And during that time, God will begin to pour out his wrath upon the world during the tribulation. Do you know that the Antichrist will turn it around and spin it and say, the reason why are these Christians that are still left here? God is judging this planet, this world, and that's why they must be eradicated. The tribulation will conclude with the physical, the physical return of Christ. 
as the Prince of Peace. Jesus will defeat the armies of the Antichrist. It's not much of a battle, church. He doesn't need a machine gun. And he will rule from Jerusalem for 1,000 years, providing a peace to our world that it's never had before. And while this conflict between Israel and Hamas may set the stage for what is to come, we can't turn a blind eye. No one can say with certainty, but at the very least, we ought to know how fast this world changes. You know, last month, and Jenny's sitting in here this morning, I'm glad she's in here because she can even verify this for me. I remember watching a special on Fox News between Israel and, the, and Saudi Arabia. Britt Bear did the special. I don't know if any of you caught that. And they began to talk about Arab-Israeli relations and how for, for years now, Israel and Saudi Arabia, remember, Saudi Arabia are the descendants of Ishmael. These are half-brothers. And how to work out a deal, how to normalize relations, how do we bring a peaceful solution to the Palestinians, a two-state solution? And I remember Netanyahu and the Saudi crown prince both were very optimistic, very optimistic. The crown prince even said he could see working with Netanyahu, and he could see there being a compromise. And I watched that. I told Jenny, she's sitting right here, I said, that's a problem. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, this can't happen. There can be no peace until the prince of peace comes. There will be a false peace, but not true peace. You say, why is it? Because God's word has made it very clear. And so then I started rethinking my theology. Hold on, hold on. What's going on here? This is supposed to take, this this can't happen this quick because this is, this got to take place after the rapture. And then all of a sudden, boy, that's all changed, hasn't it? Just that quick. And that's how fast the world changes and exposes what's really there. Remember, just, just a month ago, just really two weeks ago, there was this, this love that was taking place between the Israelis and the Arabs, and there was this normalizing of, of, of peace, and all of a sudden, now with this, it's all exposed. We hate them. They have to stop. They have to stop defending themselves. They can't prevent this from happening. They just, they just have to stop right now. Just quick, that quick, church. See, we have been warned, and this day should not surprise any of us. This is not the time for the church to really sit back on its religious haunches. More, now more than ever, this world desperately needs Jesus. And we need to be active by being laborers because the harvest is plentiful. And there are a number of reasons why we ought to, as Christians, support Israel. I'm going to give you just a couple. Number one, Jesus was Jewish. Your Lord and Savior was Jewish. He didn't come in European flesh. He didn't come in Arab flesh. He didn't come in Asian flesh. He came as a Jew. Number two, all of us are here today as Christians because of Jews. Every one of the disciples were Jews. In fact, if you don't know your Bible, then you ought to know this in the book of Acts, that Jews who came to Christ and then began to welcome Gentiles in the church were rejected by Jews. They didn't want the Jews to allow, the Jewish Christians to allow any Gentile into their house, any Gentile into their place of worship. And so those Jews that followed Jesus and became disciples, they put everything on their line. Their lives, their livelihood, their families, also we Gentiles could be grafted into the family of God. 
Number three, God made a perpetual promise to the Jewish people. The land will always belong to Israel. Lastly, God is going to deal in a very special way with the Jewish people during the tribulation. Currently, Scripture describes this time that we're in as the times of the Gentiles. And once Jesus returns for his church, there will be a primary focus on the Jewish people. And if you give you a better picture of how this is going to take place, this may seem like an odd story, but hang with me. I think you'll get it. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, that while Jesus in the tribulation is going to show a special favor or focus on the Jewish people, Gentiles will not be left out. This gives you a little more credence and understand what I'm trying to say. Uh, Verse 21, then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is where it would be Lebanon today. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send send her away, for she cries out after us. But he, being Jesus, answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jews. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. But look at her faith, and she says, yes, Lord, yet even... The little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus came to seek out Jewish people, preach the gospel to them. That was his primary mission. Did he minister to Gentiles? Yes. But Jews were his primary target. And we find that throughout the Gospels. And as we see in this example, despite his mission, he doesn't turn a blind eye to Gentiles. He is, he is just taken by this woman's faith. He's given her every opportunity not to have faith, honestly. But she just keeps pressing on towards him. And he's like, it's done. His goal is to reach the lost sheep of Israel. But at the same time, he will not ignore Gentiles who, look, come, who come looking for crumbs. And during the tribulation, God has preserved 144,000 Jews. You've heard that, that word or that number tossed around a lot in Bible prophecy, haven't you? They are Jews. They even tell us uh, how many from each of the 12 tribes. They are Jewish. They are not anything else but Jews. And 144,000 Jews will be witnesses. God has preserved. God will anoint them, and they will be messengers, and they will lead many other Jews to Christ. If we oppose Israel and turn our back on the people whom God has chosen to reveal Christ through, we are essentially turning our backs on God's plans and purposes. Listen to the heart of Jesus towards the Jews who rejected him. And this is in Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And surely I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has longing for the day when the Jewish people will look to him. 
and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's his desire. That is his heart. And as followers of Jesus, we ought to love who Jesus loves. In the coming days, if we start to see nations wavering, nations wavering, the world turning their backs on Israel, you better hit your knees. I'm telling you, you better hit your knees. You say, why? You you think Jesus is going to come then? I'm not going to say that. But I will say you're much closer to your redemption. When the SS began to goose step into Europe, into Jewish communities throughout Europe, and they drug Jews out of their homes, the church in Europe and the church in the United States did nothing. We didn't get involved. This is a European conflict. Remember, we didn't get involved in World War II until the bombs started hitting Pearl Harbor. Now, these reports, you say, well, we just didn't know. We, we did know, in fact, what was taking place. We did nothing, and the, and the Europeans did nothing. The Europeans said it when Hitler walks in, just give him the Jews. Give him what he wants. He'll leave us alone. And the church turned their back on Jews. There, you, if you can watch, there's a, a, I believe it's on Netflix, and it's a, a, a film about the Holocaust and how it was, I believe it was in Hungary, and how these Hungarian Jews prospered and lived in this Hungarian community amongst Christians, and it was just la di it was love. And then when the SS walked in, they turned their backs on these people that they had grown up with. They turned their backs on them, gave them to the SS, raided their homes, took their stuff, lived in their homes. There is a spirit that is anti-Semitic in our world. Satan doesn't know when his time will come. So he always has an antichrist figure to step in to bring a false peace. Satan always has a type. He doesn't know when Jesus is coming. He doesn't have any clue. He always has an antichrist ready. So he doesn't know, and he's always ready to bring a false peace. And Satan wants to be like Jesus. He want, he's going to embody that person, and he wants to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. That's what he desires. You know, remember, his desire was to sit on the throne in heaven, But that can't happen. So guess what he wants? He wants the throne of the earth, and that's Jerusalem. Because that's where Jesus is going to sit, so he wants that throne. And that's why there's so much fight and anger and frustration over this piece of land. One day, the king of kings will occupy his throne in Jerusalem. Satan knows that, and that's why he inspires the world to rage against the Jewish people. If our nation turns our back on Israel, I believe this with all my heart. I believe part of the reasons why America is great is because of our partnership with the Jewish people. But God is going to give our nation our sins. And I truly believe that. God is going to show our nation grace because we support Israel. I think it's one of the reasons why. But if we turn our backs on Israel and begin to betray God's eternal promise, America will place itself in wrath, in a position of wrath rather than blessing. Church, if, if this is the last part of the last days, and we're coming down to the last minutes, we better be supportive of Israel. We need to heed the warnings of the signs God is communicating to us. 2 Corinthians 6.2, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And we must be ready spiritually and morally. Our hearts must be right with him. You say, if our hearts aren't right with him, what does that mean? 
That means when he comes, you don't go. You say, well, I'll take my chances in the tribulation. Do you really want to do that? A time that God is trying to spare us. A time of wrath. If you think it's hard to live as a Christian now, you are not going to make it in the tribulation. I don't, I don't think I will make it during the tribulation. I'll be honest with you. So I'm going to serve Jesus here and now. I'm not going to take my chances during that time when it's hell on earth. Roll back that dimension that exists between our world and heaven. He was to step back in and call right now, would you be ready? Well, I believe. I didn't ask you if you believe. I asked you if you would be ready because that's the question. Ready morally and spiritually for his return. What about your family and friends? Would they be ready? I mean, can you imagine leaving this place but your family who you love isn't ready. Jesus is coming soon. It's time for us to get ready, reach lost people, get our own lives right, minister to those who are around us, minister to those who are fallen. Maybe there's people that have, have, have not served Jesus for a while in your family. It's time for you to reach out and start praying for them, interceding for them. And I pray that as we do so, may the Holy Spirit give us power to be a witness.